Hello, I'm Douglas Jackson, and you're in Book City, Roanoke. We're kicking off the third season of the podcast uh, today with guest Larry I. Palmer. He's the author of Scholarship Boy, Meditations on Family and Race. This season, our theme is Alone Together, what pulls us into community and stands us apart. And I think we're going to have some interesting conversations uh, on this theme, really around isolation. And of course, we've all been thinking a lot about isolation during this COVID period. I got to spend a little bit of the COVID period with the book Scholarship Boy, and I really enjoyed reading it. Now, Mr. Palmer is going to be in conversation with Sherry Henry, the director of Roanoke County Public Libraries, on October 13th. And that'll be... uh, via an online teleconference, and you're going to be able to be a guest and listen in and probably ask some questions as well. Uh, and for, but for now, just to give you a taste of that, I'm going to ask Mr. Palmer some questions and say, Larry, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I, I did enjoy reading the book, and I want to start with that subtitle, Meditations on Family and Race. Why did you choose the word Meditations. Well, uh, most memoirs, and this is basically a coming-of-age memoir uh, uh, story, would might have used the word essays, but I chose the word meditations very deliberately because of what happened to me uh, many years ago, seven years ago or so, in a workshop, a writer's workshop, in which um, the question was asked of me, um, if the writing gods gave you only 10 more pages to write, what would those 10 pages be about? It took me a nanosecond to answer. And I said, I would write a prayer or meditation for each of my 10 siblings. And the, the whole point of that being, I realized that the transformative event in my life that I needed to really kind of start this story was my, is my going off to this women boarding school from this large African-American family. And um, my, my sort of disaggregating my family into individual siblings helped me give the book what I'll call an emotional river. So if you read the book, there'll be some people who appear throughout some siblings who are important throughout the whole narrative from my sort of growing up to, um, I guess it's not giving it away, my father's death, but I'm about 23 years old and I'm in law school. Um, But I thought that was the more um, accurate descriptions of the kind of memoir this was. And this was not going to be, you know, exploits on the athletic fields or whatever it was gonna it, it's a book actually um as someone said it's a book that you want to take and sit on the porch and read and how it relates to the theme of isolation is that kinship kinship is the opposite of isolation in some sense not just physically but a feeling of kinship with people some of my siblings are obviously dead but a, a sense of kinship when you read a good piece of literature that helps to deal with, at least in my case, uh, uh, when COVID first came, I have consumed more great novels. I had some bad ones, but some really great novels um, where you take yourself out of yourself and you put yourself in someone else's view of the world. And I had the pleasure of 
doing that with my siblings and figuring out, you know, some things, are, you know, just kids growing up and other things are really significant uh, and cherished moments where you feel that deep connection to a human being. Let me just say one other thing. At Exeter, it's the school I, I went to, I was on the board of trustees there for 10 years and we were trying to figure out what was it that made some kids really flourish and other kids not do well at boarding school. And people are thinking we're talking you know, academically. No, we're not talking academically. Uh, we're talking a person grows in ways that are really meaningful for the rest of their lives, which is hard to do away from home. And we had this surprising finding. We paid consultants thousands of dollars to tell us something I think we would intuitively know. A teenager growing up away from home, which is what boarding school is. I always warn parents, they say, how smart do you have to be? No, it's not how smart are you? Is this child able to grow up basically away from home? And almost, I called it in my preface, a shared custody notion. But the findings were kids who do best at Exeter without their parents and so forth. My parents are a thousand, were a thousand miles away. Um, no one in my family had ever seen this school. But the kids who do best are the kids who have good connections with adults before they come to Exeter because therefore they're able to find, and it's not an intellectual, but find emotionally those people adults who are going to help them to flourish. You're going to physically grow up. I went to Exeter, I weighed less than 100 pounds. I graduated. <laughs> I won the wrestling championship at 147 pounds when I was a senior. Uh, you're going to grow intellectually, you're going to grow emotionally. And I think because I didn't know it, but understand my various relationships with these, my family members, some of whom are you know, 18, 19 years older than I am, um, gave me a foundation to know, it gave me an, emo, an incredible amount of emotional capital and mm -hmm. social capital. And at the end, I feel, you know, you know, people think you're sent away to boarding school. I know, I don't think so. You don't do well if you're sent away. If the parent can lovingly let you go, and my parents were not agreement on this. My father did not want me to go. Um, you you end up, I think, in a very different um, kind of feeling about things like isolation. And I had the feeling after I finished the book, the, the best feeling I had is that my parents would never put me on that train if they did not have absolute confidence that I could handle all the world that's going to thwart me. And now from a race perspective, I always call myself, I'm a post-Emmett Till child. In 1955, when he was killed, I went to, quote, an integrated school in St. Louis. And um, all the dangers of those world is around us, but they had the feeling this kid can find the adults in the institutions that are going to help him to flourish. And um, so that's why I call it meditations. And you can't, it, it won't give you, you know, you won't have a, you won't have a kid on how to be an anti-racist from reading my book. I do think you have some insights into how human beings cope with race, which is more of what my story is. It's not, it's in the background. It's not the first thing that comes to mind, but it's in the background. And you've got, my parents had seven sons. Mm -hmm. 
you've got, and parents talk about worrying about now. Some of the things my mother did seem very, they're very strict, but you're thinking, they're from central Arkansas. They have seen things that I have not seen. My dad had worked in southeast Arkansas for a New Deal agency, which turned out to be the site of one of the biggest internment camps for Japanese Americans. So I want to take people back in time and say, look at what these people were trying to do. Mm -hmm. You know, my family lost, my dad lost his job. They lost their farm. They lost everything. Um, and they picked up a few months before I was born and came to St. Louis, which had more opportunities relative to where they were. I thought the chapter when you go to Arkansas with, with yeah. your with your father was poignant. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But but again, that's the sense of kinship. Yeah. I I was thinking of a question if I want to ask. He, you know, they say he was dead years before, you know, you were even born. He died, you know, as an infant, at the 10 month old or nine month old. But he was my brother and the sense mm -hmm. of kinship because he affected the lives of my parents, particularly my mother, dramatically, I think. So having that, it gave me a sense of the fuller picture of the kinship. You can, that's what you're looking for. Isolation is fine as long as you feel kinship with people and to some degree the world. Mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's that, and there, you know, I think of the kind of sense sense of isolation and and being you know apart from family and people you are connected to. But then there's also yeah. that sense of isolation when you're with your kinfolk and uh, yeah. and whether it's a difference of experience or a difference of opinion. And certainly we're seeing, yeah. seeing that now where people, you know, whether it's a, like a political uh, dif yeah. disagreement within a family yeah. Um, yeah. where people, you know, some of the, the, the most important relationships to them, um, somehow they feel like they're not as much a part of it or a little, a little disconnected or um, which is a much harder kind of isolation, I think. Yeah, but I, I, I think if we can use can move from isolation to solitude, we can do a lot of good <laughs> stuff. That is, not everyone. I mean, I tried to show the good and the bad of a large family, and I think families are imperfect human institutions. They're not going to meet the needs of every person in the family. So, um, I sometimes identify with you know not the stars of the family, but my brother who ran away. Um, because I do feel that some psychologists say, kids don't run away, they're pushed out. Now, it may not be consciously pushed out, but given the turmoil in my family's life when he was a teenager, remember, he's just coming of age as I'm born, they're moving, did they leave him, did they send him to Kansas City because but they didn't have room for all the kids. I mean, all, all, it's almost like a Jane Austen novel in some sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm rereading some Jane Austen these days. Just finished Emma. Started Mansfield's Park last night. But I think, I, I, I hope people can learn to embrace kind of the deck they were dealt in terms of kinship and to realize that that's not the only deck you have. Mm. And... Um, you can go on and have life long friendships. 
when we launched the book um, and our little, my wife and I decided we'd do a little Zoom, we were going to have a big party for all our friends in the area and so forth in, in May when the book was published. About 100 people showed up. That's quite a number of people. But there were people from Exeter. There were people I Cynthia I'd gone to grade school with on there. My son was there. There were three of my first students I taught as a law professor. There were friends, there were writers, there were people I'd met. And, you know, I, I once did a little sermon called Friends I Haven't Met Yet. I left home with the notion there were friends I haven't met yet. And the first one was the kid on the train who helped get me to the right station. I mean, <laughs> I basically had an escort once I got to Boston. No one told me there were three train stations in downtown <laughs> Boston, but he was a senior at, you know, Andover, which is our rival school. So, um, and, you know, you make friendship. Oh, the kid who used the racial epithet the first day, Brink, mm -hmm. we're on the wrestling team together. He was at the, he was there at that launch. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can't sometimes let loose, let go of some of our family's fear and notion of kinship being this tight thing, uh, I think we lose some of our humanity actually. And, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm very close to my siblings. They've been extremely gracious about the memoir. Um, in private conversations and the few times some of them shown up, like my, my sister, Leela, of Dancing With My Sister Fame. I, I love writing that piece. It just made me so happy. Um, um, they've all been very generous, but I've talked to some of my nieces and great nieces. I says, maybe we need a family Zoom where, you know, there's still Palmer solidarity. There, there are questions they might want to ask they would never ask in person. <laughs> <laughs> They're just sort of admiring me, and I know this. So, but uh, I, I somebody somebody once asked me about why did I use the word the price of cultural migration. It is sort of a cultural migration, but you don't end in one place. You, it, the migration is that you're integrating your life into a whole. Over time, you're not saying mm -hmm. I'm white, I'm black. Uh, yes, I like this classical music, but I don't like that kind of rap, but I like that kind of hip hop. You, you, the, the world's much richer when your boundaries of kinship are softer rather than hard. And I think uh, I'm very fortunate that there are members of my family who let me have that, what it call soft but deep. It's it's soft but it's deeper in a way because it's not offense. It's just, you know, you love these people mm -hmm. the way I, I when I wrote the book, I just I didn't talk to any of them. Maybe because I'm still afraid. So my youngest son says, they'll treat you like you're 14. <laughs> but no, no, I didn't. But I like a good novelist, I love these people. Therefore I could write about them honestly. Mm -hmm. and not have to gloss over uh, things which hurt me or gloss over perhaps when I hurt them, like my little brother Barry. Um, and, you know, I think, um, I like the word kinship. I'll just keep using it. It's a contrast to isolation. If you're mm -hmm. a friend of the world, you're going to be isolated. If you are 
aware of the dangers of the world, like the preface of the book, spoiler alert, that was a 1970 incident when I'm stopped by uh, an armed uh, agent. I was very cool, but I didn't tell if I could if I could write a little new preface. I put a little preface. Oh, I was very calm. I went back and graded my papers. I'm a young assistant law professor. But when I got home and talked to my wife and started to relay it, driving home, mm. I was so angry and distracted that I missed my exit off the highway by 20 miles. And I said to myself, now, you can be cool and calm, but you have to deal with that repressed anger, which is also fear. It's very dangerous. And what people ask me, what, how does this speak to the current moment? The thing I'm afraid of, most afraid of, is some young, probably young African-American or black young man being so fed up and angry that they do something that my, I'll call it post-immatil mindset says, you don't mess with a white man with a gun because he doesn't see you. There's no kinship there. He doesn't see you. I mean, some of these incidents like going to the wrong apartment for a no-knock warrant, I wonder if this, I almost said to my wife, do all, they assume all black boyfriends look alike or something? She's not, you know, the person that she might have been there, it's gone. She's no longer in a relationship with them. And, um, but there is the point, and I, I saw some of that in the 60s, the late 60s, of people just giving up in despair. hope this awakening is much deeper than what I call the checklist or the you know, we've got a black vice president or Kentucky we've got a black attorney general therefore we solved all the problems structural racism is so much deeper it's in ways in which none of us always see white or black I'd say there's white privilege or white innocence and there's black complicity and <laughs> I I just, I, I do feel sorry for that attorney general. I think one day he's gonna work up and look at what he actually said uh, and not realize that, you know, the myth, I mean, some of the myths that are told in the black community, if you're successful, that advances the race. And I always say, can I actually prove to anybody that because I went off to all these fancy schools and the professor at Cornell, the vice president, that actually helped some other person? I'm never going to tell myself that. Mm -hmm. I want to actually do something to change something, mm -hmm. but not assume that I can just go on and live in my nice neighborhood, knock on wood in Richmond, um, and enjoy life and just feel I've done my part. And I, I, I don't, I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. uh, Sorry to be so long-winded. No, no. In fact, that you you went exactly where I was hoping to to go, and I had a question that you that you exactly answered and responded no. to. Um, in addition, you've given me that word uh, kinship, which I um, really do respond to, um, and 
I'm thinking about the structure of the book, and as I read it, um, the inter- I was introduced to it, you know to to your siblings, and then I was introduced in a deeper way individually to siblings. Uh, yeah. Then toward the end, I was introduced in a deeper way to your parents. I kept thinking about what we have access to, the knowledge we have access to as we're growing up um, and in situations, yeah. and we're surrounded by it, but we never. We never, you know, in any con- situation, we never have the full picture. Uh, your siblings yeah. have a different perspective. Your your parents have a different perspective. What did you learn about your parents in the process of writing the book? Uh, well, I learned about my dad how hard it was for him to try to be the father of all those kids. I, I really, I could feel it. If, if writing about my sister Leela made me smile, writing about my dad and my kind of self-involvedness about his disability always made me very sad, almost to the point of tears. Until the second year I went to the rights workshop at Kenyon, I read a little mini version of Dad's Cane. It's like I shared this kinship with the other writers, there are 100 people there listening to this story. And then I could move past the pain and really look at this very um, sort of, my dad was more of an intellectual than I ever realized that you're out there mixing cement and you're talking about John Dewey. It sounds incredible, but that's the kind of person he was. And, you know, I think he would wish if he had a life choices, he would prefer to be a John Dewey than a mail handler at the post office. But, you know, he went to college. My dad graduated from college a hundred years ago. Wow. That's that's amazing. But um, my mother I learned, my mother was much more difficult to start what I learned because I had an image of her because she wanted me to go to Exeter that she was always on my side. I started to realize how the culture and the family situation she grew up with was so constricted. I go back to Jane Austen. Her dad died when she was 12 years old. I think there were five kids in the family. For some reason, She's sent to live with her father's aunt, who is a school teacher, and that's how she gets to college now. But remember, I just read the opening pages of Mansfield Park, if you're a Jane Austen. What a traumatic experience that might have been to lose all your brothers and sisters, even though her cousin was like her, um, was like her sister. I mean, I knew cousin Benny all, all, all my life. But um, I, I learned to appreciate how even more how what a strong, incredible person she was. Uh, she's more ambitious. My dad is not as ambitious. My dad would have been perfectly happy, I'm sure, if I'd stayed in St. Louis and won a scholarship at Washington too. That's a big triumph for somebody who's been excluded from education in Arkansas, being one of the few people in his family who He's the only one boy who went to college, probably one of the few people who, he went to a little private school. Um, so, but 
I think my dad, I really learned to really feel and see him as a human being and not just as my father. See, that's still remaining the child rather than say the kinship I have to have now with my dad is to mourn and respect what he did or what he tried to do. He was a good enough parent. And all I want my kids to feel I did the best I could under the circumstances. And that's a wonderful feeling to have that kind of love and kinship. Someone just says, and I saw it at my, my Harvard graduation. My mother thought he was all excited about my graduation. He was excited about me. And that's the first time I had my parents to myself. And I also realized my dad's not the same father he was to my brother Al. He was a young man. By the time I'm growing up, he's older, hypertension, issues of health, and so forth are starting to take over his life. So, I mean, it, it's a wonderful feeling when you sort of when you can feel that kinship. It says to you. My dad did some strange things. He used to hunt with my uncle and my older brother. And how did he know those white people who let them hunt on his land? I don't know, but he, you know, he once took us on our only vacation in the Ozarks. We went camping Mm -hmm. down in the Ozarks. We had, you know, learn how to shoot a gun. And he's sharing his life or trying to share his life and values with you. People yeah. ask me why I didn't have a large family. I said, I'm not one half the man my father was, and I know it. And I'm talking in terms of heart, mm-hmm. not just in terms of brain, but, but just in terms of his capacity to enjoy life, to be with his brothers. My father, I, I, here's the difference. I can, I can remember seeing my father cry because he's so happy. I can very hard, it's very hard to remember a time my mother ever. So the yeah, it's sort of like mm-hmm. the compassion, the deep compassion, the kind of you walk in. My oldest sister Lena's that way. It's my dad's that way. I come over. My mother's sort of glad that you that you find a taxi okay to get home. I'm going. <laughs> it's it's no big deal. But every time I walked in the house with my dad, it was a big deal. Well, you you characterize them all so well in 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 small actions and reactions to each other. You do a terrific job throughout the the, the book of that. Well, let, thank you. Let, let me ask one final question, um, and this is still around kinship, and but looking at the next generation and your children, and um, how in and I'm sure your your parent you take parenting your parenting style probably um, emerged from your relationship with your parents and also yeah. differed from your relationship with your parents. Yeah. yeah. At the end of this, yeah, you know, the question I was asking, I guess myself too, was kind of how do you define success? Because that's something you communicate to your to your children. It's something that that you I think we all probably define and redefine over the course of our yeah. lives, but. How do you dis- define success, and how and how have you instilled that in your children? Well, I think I define success when something that is need or passion in your own life meets the needs of the world at a certain moment. Um, I guess the one thing my parents brought me up with, if you read the preface, all work has dignity. 
you know, my mom says, I want you to be you know, <laughs> a lawyer, a minister, but if you end up a dishwasher, be the best dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And you joke at that, but she's basically saying the world might constrict what you can do, but find meaning and uh, success in it. That's the other thing, I guess, that's the positive part I brought that I wanted my kids to respect, not become a bunch of little faculty brats, which is easy to do in a, in a college town like Ithaca with two, two colleges there. Um, but I, I also, I also, you know, you know, those values of hard work, working hard at whatever you're doing. Uh, I, you know, I obviously try to instill that in my kids. But the one thing I didn't try to do is two things. I did not believe in physical punishment. My parents, I, I think that was extremely humiliating, especially for a, a kid as sensitive as I was. Um, I also um, didn't, I, 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 I mean, it's, it's hard for me to say which things I didn't or do, but I guess the thing I tried to instill in them was a sense of how important they were in my life and try to spend time with them, even though I was a vice president when they were little. Uh, but no, I, and also I guess what I did do, I do try to respect the kinship relationships they have. My family, I think, was a little too tight-knit. You know, this is it. I tried to be a little bit more open as they grew up and let some things, which I wish he wasn't friends with X, but realizing that's something he might need. And um, and I, I, sort of, I sort of admire that. My oldest son is not that way, uh, nor but you know, he's just a different kind of person. He doesn't have that deep uh, sense of connectedness that the youngest one does. And I find, you know, when you have to be isolated from a person like that, it's probably more difficult. So I try to, I try to differentiate. My parents were very much into equality. This is why Barry and I are dressed alike, you know. I'm more in equity and differentiation. If X needs... I mean, I, equality at one level, financially and so forth. But if X needs more conversation because he's suffering a lot more and why my oldest son runs a, a restaurant in Ithaca, he didn't have a lot of time to talk to anybody, I'm sure. Restaurant's still alive. Uh, um, that's okay. And I don't, I, I try to have what I call a soft connectedness rather than, I'm the grandparent, you must come visit me. Where are the kids? I want to do, I'm thinking, I've got a life to live and you have a life to live, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, particularly, but so. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking some time and exploring yeah. uh, kinship and, and isolation and solitude with yeah. me. And yeah. the book is Scholarship Boy, Meditations on Family and Race by Larry I. Palmer. Uh, and Mr. Palmer is going to be at the Roanoke County Public Library on October 13th. And I really encourage folks to grab a copy of the book and read and then really enjoy the conversation that Sherry Henry has with Larry Palmer. Thank you again for taking the time. 
Uh, I'm Douglas Jackson. This is Book City Roanoke.